Tommy loved Mr. Johnson. Mr. Johnson was Tommy's sixth grade science teacher, and for the first time in Tommy's life, he was actually having fun in science class. He looked forward to it. He enjoyed it, in fact. Now, he didn't admit that to his friends because, of course, he was in sixth grade, and sixth graders don't admit that they enjoy anything in school except for uh, P.E. and recess, but he did look forward to science class. And the reason that he looked forward to science class was because Mr. Johnson was fun to listen to. He made learning about science and learning about the world something that a sixth grader could really get into. Mr. Johnson, he had some things going for him. He was just out of college with a freshly minted master's degree. He had a red convertible sports car and a really pretty fiance. And Mr. Johnson was everything that a sixth grader thought a science teacher ought to be. And every now and then, Mr. Johnson would take his class on nature walks and he would say, class, isn't it amazing how this bug evolved the ability to protect itself from predators by... Then he would explain something about a bug. Or he would say, class, isn't it amazing how this tree evolved the ability to make its seeds with little helicopter landing things that shoot and then he would explain about the seeds of the tree. Now, Tommy knew that at his house he wasn't learning uh, evolution and trees evolving, etc., but he never really gave it much thought. Not until today. You see, today was different. Mr. Johnson stood before the class and he said, Class, today we're going to talk about how the universe got here. Can anyone tell me how that happened? Eugene left him, sat on the front row, read his science textbook for fun, made a 100 on every science test there was, unless there was a bonus question, and then he made a 102. That's Eugene, and Mr. Johnson, as he was accustomed to, said, Eugene, can you tell me? Eugene said, 13.82 billion years ago, there was a tiny singularity that exploded in what is commonly referred to as the Big Bang. That big explosion. And then he gave the textbook atheistic spiel as to how the universe got here. Now, Tommy was having some problems because he knew that's not what he had been taught. He knew that he had been taught something very different than that, that at his house he was told that God created the world, that he made all of the world in six days, and on the sixth day he made man, and man didn't evolve from primordial slime over millions of years. He was made in the form of Adam and Eve, and Tommy knew that what he was hearing from Eugene and what he had been reading in his science textbook was not what he'd been taught. And you know, Tommy wasn't alone. Out of the 32 kids that were in the class, 28 of them were hearing something from Eugene that they had never heard growing up. Mr. Johnson said, Class, that's outstanding. Thank you very much, Eugene. Can anybody else tell me how life formed on the earth? Well, Katie raised her hand, and Mr. Johnson called on Katie, and Katie explained that about 5 billion years ago, there was a warm chemical soup that had unliving chemicals in it like ammonia and hydrogen and something like lightning struck those chemicals and caused the first single-celled amoeba to form? Mr. Johnson said, that's great. Now, there again, Tommy was having some serious problems because 
That's not what he had been taught. He had been taught that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth and God spoke life into existence. The first forms of life on day three, the flowers, grass, and trees. The next forms of life on day five, the flying animals and the marine water-dwelling animals. So Tommy had a problem. Well, Tommy was relieved when Stephen raised his hand in the back. And Mr. Johnson said, yes, Stephen, did you have a question? Stephen, in a very nervous-sounding but brave voice, said, Mr. Johnson, that's not right. Mr. Johnson said, what's not right? Stephen said, what you just said about how the universe got here and what our book says, that's not right. And Mr. Johnson said, that's not right. What do you mean by that? Stephen said, well, my dad says that there is a God who created the world and everything in it. Now, Mr. Johnson had 64 eyes, 32 pairs glued to him now because the rest of the class wanted to know what he was going to do with that piece of information. And they were all surprised when a big grin swept over Mr. Johnson's face and he said, Stephen... I was hoping somebody would bring that up. He said, where would your dad get that idea? And Stephen said, from the Bible. You know, that class was even more surprised when Mr. Johnson went to his desk and he opened that top left desk drawer and he pulled out a leather-bound black book. And he said, Stephen, did that Bible look anything like this? Stephen said, yes, sir. Well, then Mr. Johnson flipped it open and he started reading the first few pages and he started reading about some things and doeth and hast and hath and shalt and thou and thee. And it sounded like Shakespeare. Really? And Mr. Johnson said, Class, does this sound old to you? Now, whatever else it sounded like, it did sound old. And he said, you know what, this book has got lots of great information in it. In fact, he said, this book, especially in the later parts of it, has a story about a man by the name of Jesus Christ who did a lot to affect the world. And there are some really good moral principles in this book. But he said, you can't go to it for science. He said, this book is old and ideas are outdated. In fact, he said, do you know that the people who wrote this book believed that the earth was flat? And he turned to a section in the Psalms that talked about the four corners of the earth. And he said, have you ever seen corners on a sphere of a globe? But globes don't have corners. Spheres don't have corners. The people who wrote this book, well, they had a lot of knowledge for their time, but our scientific knowledge now has surpassed that. And he put that Bible back in his drawer and he went on with his class. Do you think that happens in the United States of America in places all across this country virtually every single day? Something like it does. In fact, I want to read to you a quote from a man by the name of Daniel Dennett. He said, those of us who have the freedom of speech will feel free if you send your kid to school and you've taught him something other than atheistic evolution he says, we will feel free to describe your teachings as the spreading of falsehoods and will attempt to demonstrate this to your children at our earliest opportunity. Now, Tommy and Mr. Johnson's scenario is hypothetical. It's not one that 
actually factually happened. But if you were to take the outline of that scenario and you were to look around our country and you were to listen what men like Daniel Dennett say, it happens every single day. In fact, just outside of Nashville in the Williamson County School System, there was a grandmother there who had a third grade grandson. She sent her son to her grandson to school with a Bible because it was drop everything and read time. Drop everything and read time is supposed to be the time that your kid can bring anything he or she wants from home to encourage them to read. And this particular third grader brought a Bible to school for the 30-minute period of drop everything and read, and the teacher said, you cannot do that. You can't bring a Bible into this school and read it during drop everything and read time. You have to bring some other book. Folks, and that's in Williamson County, right below Nashville. That's the buckle of the Bible belt. And the third grader is informed that he can't read a Bible. I'm in Florence, Alabama. In Florence, Alabama, the Brooks High School has been starting their football games on Friday nights with a prayer for decades. Last year, actually I believe it was two years ago, the Freedom From Religion Foundation, you might recognize that name, Dan Barker, the man I debated in 2009, is the co-president of the Freedom From Religion Foundation. That's the largest atheistic organization in North America. There are about 18,000 adherents to the Freedom From Religion Foundation. They sued Brooks High School because they said that saying a prayer over a publicly purchased PA system was a violation of church and state. Now that's remarkable to me that they can get anywhere with a case like that in light of the fact that every single congressional meeting ever in the United States of America starts with a prayer. Now that would mean we would have to shut down every single governmental meeting. We could, well, we won't go into the separation of church and state and how it's been uh, warped and how it has been perverted and how from the very beginning our founding fathers founded this country on principles found in the New Testament and told us exactly that they did that. We won't go into that, but here's what I will say. They sued the Brooks High School 15 miles away from my home and they won. Brooks High School doesn't start their football games anymore with a prayer because an atheistic organization came down and sued them to stop. You know what I think lots of our people believe? Lots of our people believe that skepticism is going to blow over. That because somehow the evidence doesn't point to atheism, and certainly it doesn't, we looked at that last night, somehow that our country, without us stepping up and doing anything, is going to wake up and realize that Psalm 14.1 has always been right. The fool has said in his heart there is no God. And somehow without our intervention or doing any work ourselves, it's just going to make itself right. It's not. It's not just going to make itself right. If a child is going to learn the truth, guess who's going to have to teach him or her that truth? You. And you might teach your child. Well, what about the child sitting next to your child in school? What about the child that your kid meets at the mall? What about the child that your kid meets at the playground? What about the children and young people that don't have the resources that your children happen to have? Who's going to teach them? Well, Daniel Dennett says, we will. We'll teach them. In fact, at the earliest opportunity, you send your kids to our school and we'll tell them if you've taught them creation that you're lying to them. 
or we'll tell them that you're spreading falsehoods and we'll set them straight. You want to know the irony of that? The irony of that is I'm about to show you the evidence that's used to teach evolution. This is the evidence that my co-worker Eric Lyons and I have gone through the textbooks. We found what they're using to teach evolution, saying that this proves that there's no God and that creation doesn't make scientific sense. And I'm going to show you that when you look at the evidence that supposedly proves evolution, you see the exact opposite. Somebody really is lying. And it doesn't happen to be the person who believes in biblical creation. But when I say what's ironic about that, I say that because the atheistic evolutionary community is bold enough to take every opportunity they've got to teach this material. And often, we are not. Now, let me show you what I mean by this. I want to show you an example of the evidence that's used to prove evolution. You see, what we're told often is that evolution is a proven fact, that it is something that all scientists agree on, and that if you were to look at the evidence and you were an unbiased observer, then you would agree on the evolutionary idea just like the rest of the scientific community. Just so happens, however, if you get to critically look at the material, if you get to say, here's the actual evidence that's being presented, is it valid? I'm going to show you what happens. This is something that has been in textbooks for ages and ages and ages, proving, if you will look there at the bottom of this particular... Well, I'll show it to you in just a minute. Let me give you the scenario. It's the English peppered moth. Here's what you're told in most science books about this particular piece of evidence for evolution. Before the Industrial Revolution, English peppered moth population looked like this. 95% light colored and 5% dark colored. Now here's what we're told. If you were a bird, I know, work with me. We don't know exactly what we do if we were a bird, but here's how the scenario goes. If you were a bird and you came upon a tree and there were those two moths, which one would you eat? Well, you'd eat the dark one, of course, because you can see it. You can't see the one that's camouflaged. But, they say, after the Industrial Revolution, when the soot killed the lichens on the tree trunks, the English peppered moth population changed from 95% light to 95% dark, and from 5% dark to 5% light. And now, if you will notice, this is supposed to be evolution in action. This is supposed to be an example that proves things evolve over time from primordial slime into humans. Now, let's critically analyze this. This is something that most kids don't ever get to do. A teacher stands up and says this is proof of evolution. Most of the time, creationists whose parents have been teaching the Bible, they've never really looked at English peppered moth scenarios, and so they wouldn't really even know what to answer their kids when their kids come home and say, hey, we just saw proof for evolution, but let's analyze this for a second. If you're going to get an organism that's going to evolve from primordial slime into humans, what you have to have is additional genetic information that builds from one kind of creature to another. And what I mean by that is, if you were to compare the human genome to the genome of an amoeba, the human genome has a lot more instructions in it than amoeba genome. And if you were to look at a fighter jet, it's got a lot more instructions to it than a, a Lego toy. You understand the difference there? You've got to have some more information. Now, if we were just to ask a simple question, before the Industrial Revolution, genetic information was available for what two distinctions of English peppered moth? Light-colored and dark-colored. 
after the Industrial Revolution, what new genetic information did you have? None. You still simply had genetic information that gave you light-colored and dark-colored. You didn't have any new genetic information. It's not like the moth grew a scale. And now you've got half moth and half lizard. You don't have a, a law here or a lizard. You've still just got an English peppered moth. That's all you're dealing with. So if we were to say, is this proof of evolution? Absolutely, positively not. But the second problem with this proof of evolution, have you ever tried to get five-year-olds to stand still for a picture? It's rather challenging, isn't it? And to get them to smile at the same time so you can put something on a Christmas card and send to your friends that looks halfway decent, that's even more difficult. What you gotta, you got to reward them or at least bribe them with, what, some yogurt from Tops or something to get them to do what they need to do? Now, have you ever seen English peppered moths fly onto a tree and land perfect so they fit right in the lens of a camera? Does that... Uh, make you wonder how in the world they got these English pepper moths to fit perfectly on a tree trunk so that the editors or the photographers for these science textbooks could get perfect pictures? When you saw that, did you think, huh, how does that happen? Well, most of us didn't until we start critically considering it. And then guess what? Uh, English pepper moths, just by the way, they don't land on tree trunks. They've studied English peppered moss for 40 years, and if I understand it correctly, they've only ever found two pair on tree trunks. English peppered moss land on the underside of green leaves, and it doesn't really even matter what color they are as to why a predator would eat them. Well, you ask, how in the world did they get the pictures up there? Oh, they just caught the moss, put them in some formaldehyde, and pinned them on there. Or they caught the moss and placed them on there artificially, and then took the picture. Now, what you'd like to think is that the publishers who are doing this didn't know that, and that they accidentally used this information, and that, oh, once they are enlightened as to how this was set up, they would change their situation. Oh, no, 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 no. Bob Ritter, Canadian textbook writer, look there, is the description of him who knew the pictures were frauds, used them anyway. He said, I mean, you've got to look at the audience, how convoluted you want to make it for a first-time learner. He said the advantage of this example of natural selection is that it's extremely visual. Okay, guess what? It's not an example of natural selection. You made it up. Well, yeah, you can make it as visual as you want if you make something up. Let me explain. Suppose I say, guys, I've got a new theory. I think it's really awesome. If you have white cows and they eat green grass, they then grow purple spots. And you say, Kyle, that's ridiculous. And I say... Oh, it's not ridiculous. In fact, I've got observable scientific evidence that proves it. And you say, you do? And I say, yes. Just come tomorrow, and right outside of the building there at Earlyville, we will have ten of my cows that are white. They'll be grazing on whatever green grass is left in the Earlyville, their yard, just before class. It generally takes about two hours. If you'll just go back outside after the sermon, you will see that they have grown purple spots. And so, sure enough, you walk in, there's the white cows, they're beautifully white, and they're eating green grass, and you think, okay, everything is going according to what he said. And then afterwards, the sermon, you go outside and you say, wow, look at those cows. There are purple spots all over those cows. And I said, there you go, that proves it. And you say, whew, 
And one of you goes up to one of those cows and you put your hand on the cow and you start petting it. And then, boy, your, your forehead's itching, so you start wiping your forehead. And then you look over at your, uh, your wife and she starts laughing at you. And you say, what, what are you laughing at? She said, you got purple all over your face. So you pull out your handkerchief and sure enough, you wipe on your face and you look, yep, purple all over your handkerchief. And you go over and you take that handkerchief and you wipe off one of the spots on one of those cows and you say, Kyle... You painted these spots on there. They don't grow them. And I said, oh, no. But the advantage of this sample of natural selection is that it's extremely visual. Guess what? If you get to make up the information, you can make it as visual as you want. But it doesn't prove what you're trying to say, does it? Now look at his last statement. We want to get across the idea of selective adaptation later on, what the high school students, the middle school students, they can look at it more critically. Let me ask you this question. When is later on? When do the middle schoolers and the high schoolers get to look at this more critically? You know, I was reading from a man who had a Ph.D. in one of the scientific disciplines, and he had been taught this scenario about the English-peppered moth his entire educational career, and he had a Ph.D., a terminal degree in science. You don't go any further than that. And what he was so angry about was that he had never been given the opportunity to critically consider it. Let me ask you a question. When do you get to critically consider this information? Well, it just so happens if you come to a Friday, Saturday, Sunday seminar that somebody like me does. You know, it's thrilling to me. Sometimes I'll go and speak to 200 kids, sometimes 300. I speak at CYC Challenge Youth Conference to sometimes 12,000 kids. That's exciting to me. I do about 10 to 12 of these seminars every single year. Combined, I've probably talked to tens of thousands of people, literally. You know how many kids every single day are fed this stuff across the country that I'll never touch or Eric Lyons will never touch or the other people at Apologetics Press or people that do what I do will never... Millions every day. They're not going to get to look at it more critically. I was up in Maryland and I was delivering this information and the next aspect that I'll show you, the English pepper moth and then Haeckel's embryos, there was a ninth grader who was in the seminar and two weeks later, I believe it was, she sent me back an email and she said, Kyle, guess what our biology teacher just used today in class to teach evolution? She said, he just used the English peppered moths and Haeckel's embryos. She said, I about laughed out loud because we had learned the truth about those. That was thrilling to me. But what if she hadn't been to that seminar? And she sat in that class and she was force-fed Haeckel's embryos and the English peppered moth just like millions of kids across the country are and she wasn't prepared to deal with that. It's frightening, isn't it? Not only is it frightening, but that's what happens most of the time. Continue with me. This man's name is Ernst Haeckel. In 1859, Charles Darwin wrote his book on the origin of species by natural selection or the preservation of favored races. He put out about 1,200 copies, if I understand correctly. In 1859, they sold out within a few weeks. In fact, so popular was this particular book, it was translated into several different languages the very next year. Ernst Haeckel got a copy of it. He thought it was the greatest idea that had ever been 
from pen to paper, and he said, I'm going to prove that evolution is true. And he came up with the law of embryology, and he said, ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny. And I know that that is such a profound idea. All of you are sitting in awe at the profundity of that particular statement, aren't you? I mean, ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny. Can you believe that that would be the case? And of course, none of us really have any idea what ontogeny recapitulating phylogeny was, and neither really did the students in Ernst Haeckel's class. They would listen to him at the University of Jena, and he would say, ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny, and they would say, hmm, that sounds really smart. And you know, there are people that want to sound really smart. It's something to me that if you can't explain something to another person in a way that they can understand it, it doesn't really show your intelligence very much, does it? I was Skyping with a group of international students in China. Several of them were skeptics and unbelievers. A friend of mine had invited me to participate in a class called the Theory of Knowledge. And he said, I want you to present the information for the existence of God. And I did. And we had a question and answer period. And one of the kids stood up at the end of the question and answer period. And he said, I have a question. And he said, how come? And he went into a question that was so filled with big words and scientific jargon that neither me nor anybody else in the entire class could understand what in the world he was trying to get at. Boy, but he sure looked smart. You know what value there is to looking smart? Not much. In fact, when Ernst Haeckel put out his presentation of ontogeny recapitulating phylogeny, the embryonic law, well, people thought this was great, this was amazing. Well, what in the world does that mean? Here's what it meant. Ontogeny is the growth of an organism from conception to birth. Phylogeny is its supposed evolutionary history. So put that together. From the time that an organism is conceived to the time it's born, it recapitulates or goes back through its evolutionary history. That's what he said, anyway. So you could zoom in on a human embryo if you caught it at the right time and it'd be a fish. You could then zoom in on the human embryo if you caught it at the right time, it'd be an amphibian. Then you could zoom in on a human embryo if you caught it at the right time, it'd be close to something like a monkey, and then boom, eventually it gets to human. And he said, yeah, I can prove it, look. Look how similar all of these embryos are. He said, if you were to take the turtle, if you were to take the pig and the dog and the human and the chicken, he said, when you look at their earliest stages of development, they all have gill slits and they almost look identical. And he said, this proves that evolution is true. His fellow professors started looking at those pictures and they said, hold on just a second, Hank. Hey, uh, where'd you get those? He said, well, I drew them. They said, how? I mean, where'd you get the pictures? He said, well, yeah, I mean, I drew some of them from memory. And he said, sometimes I draw one embryo and copy it three times and name it three different things. But, I mean, you could do that because they're so similar. And they said, really? Well, I mean, the real embryos don't look much like your embryo. And he said, all right, all right. Okay, so I falsified some of the stuff. But still it proves evolution to be true. He said, no, it doesn't. 
They said, oh, by the way, those aren't gill slits. They happen to be folds, almost like what triple or quadruple tens, that develop into other parts of the body. They never, ever were gill slits. Somebody wrote me the other day, email, I get all kinds of email from all over the country, and this guy said, you people are idiots. Why don't you come into the 21st century and admit you've been lying to people and tell people the truth that we evolved from primordial slime over millions of years and that there's not a God? I can't believe you're even allowed to put this stuff out. And I said, as I try to do, I said, we appreciate all feedback, even when it's negative, but we would have to respectfully disagree with your conclusion. I said, would you please provide for me a piece of evidence that you think proves evolution or atheism to be true. Now, as I remember, he said something like, well, there's just so much of it, I don't even know what I would pick. I wrote back and said, well, I understand that you would think that way, but if you don't mind, just give me one of your strongest arguments that you think proves evolution. Do you know what he wrote back? He said, okay, here's what proves evolution. When humans are developing in the womb from conception to birth, they go through a fish stage just like all the other animals, and we've got gill slits. That was his biggest piece of information to prove evolution to be the case. Now hold that thought. You can't blame the poor kid. I think it was a young guy. And here's why you can't blame him. Because this has been taught since 1871 as one of the greatest pieces of information that proves evolution. It's been taught that way since 1871. This is the University of Western Florida's textbook in which Haeckel's embryos are used to prove evolution. I was talking to a biology class in Alabama there, Montgomery, and the professor who was allowing me to, the teacher who was allowing me to teach his class, when I talked about the University of Western Florida, he perked up and he looked, because he had graduated from the University of Western Florida, it just so happened that he had used this very book in his classes and had been taught Haeckel's embryos proved evolution. Now follow this thought with me. This is a magazine called Natural History. This was put out in March of 2000. This guy that I'm going to show you is no friend of the creationist. In fact, his name is Stephen Jay Gould, and at one time he was the most renowned evolutionary writer in the world. He wrote an article titled Atrocious, How Haeckel's Distortions Did Not Help Darwin. And he said, Haeckel remains most famous today as the chief architect and propagandist for a famous argument that science disproved long ago, but that popular culture has never fully abandoned. Now watch what else he says. He says, we should therefore not be surprised that Haeckel's drawings entered 19th century textbooks, but we do, I think, have the right to be both astonished and ashamed by the century of mindless recycling that has led to the persistence of these drawings in a large number, if not the majority, of textbooks. Now, folks, I want you to listen to that. Do you understand that a century is just under half of how long our country has been in existence? You mean to tell me that since 1871, from, what, six years after the Civil War, 
This material has been in textbooks and publishers have kept it in there as evidence of evolution and it's still in there being used to teach college-level classes? Yeah. And who's spreading falsehood? Oh, and by the way, that guy who sent me the email, I said, I could just tell you that... Uh, Humans never have guilt slits, but I'll let you see it for yourself. This is Stephen Jay Gould. You can go to your evolutionary teaching friend here and find it yourself. You know what he wrote back? He said, yep, that's why evolution is superior to creation. Because I can see that I was wrong and I can change the evidence that I use, but you're stuck to creation because that's what's in the Bible. You mean to tell me that you sent me your biggest piece of evidence for evolution and I took you to one of your evolutionary professors who says this doesn't prove evolution and you have based your conclusions on this piece of information. You think it's the best you've got and with a wave of the hand, you say, oh, that doesn't matter. Evolution is still superior because I can just go get another piece of information but you're stuck with creation. Guess what being stuck with creation means? Being stuck with creation happens to mean you're stuck with the facts. You're dealing with the truth. It's not that people who are believing in creation are stuck and can't change their mind. You don't need to change your mind because the evidence points to creation. And the way that that young man dealt with the information is exactly how, generally speaking, those in the evolutionary community deal with it. If you get rid of one piece, oh, they'll just grab another one. And you get rid of that piece, they'll just grab another one and another one, and another one. But you know what? We all day long can show that there is not evidence to prove evolution. Continue with me. These are some of the textbooks that have this information in it. A month and a half ago, maybe two months, I was down in Atlanta, Texas. I don't know if you know much about the layout of Atlanta, Texas. I live in Florence, Alabama. I could drive from Florence, Alabama to Atlanta, Texas in seven and a half hours. It's at the very north tip of Texas. I thought that was pretty neat. I didn't know there was anywhere in Texas that I could get to in seven hours. Sure enough, got down to Atlanta, Texas, started presenting this stuff. Several other people there in Texas came up and said, oh yeah, that's the book we're still using in our school system. They said, yeah, that book that you showed with the orca, the killer whale on it, we're still using that. And it's still got Haeckel's embryos in it, folks. It's the year 2014. We've known Haeckel's embryos are false for 18, since 1871. Now let me ask you a question. I want you to think hard about this. If we've known they're false since 1871 and it's 2014, why are they still in the books? Why? Because they don't... Because they don't have anything else. Because if you take out all the stuff that we know is not true, really... Well, then you strip all of those books of virtually everything that they've got as it relates to teaching on evolution. If they had new stuff that somehow proved evolution and they've got 150 years to find it and it's not in there, have you asked yourself why? Why isn't it in there? Let me show you what I mean by that. Uh, you'll probably recognize. Oh, right there, that's a UT Martin right there. You recognize this at all? Any of y'all ever seen this? Look at that. Isn't that beautiful? I mean, you go all the way from Eohippus, which means a dawn horse, all the way up to modern Equus, which means horse. I mean, there we are. 
hierocotherium to mesohippus and myohippus and merytippus and pliohippus and boom, modern horse. You know how many books have presented this? I was up in Washington, D.C. at the Smithsonian Museum of Natural History and if you've never been there, it's an amazing place. There's a huge exhibit of an elephant right at the entrance and you know how much it costs to go into the Museum of Natural History at the Smithsonian? You know how much it costs the entrance? Zero. It doesn't cost you a dime. Well, I mean, I say it doesn't cost you a dime. What happens is when you send your money to the federal government every April 15th, they decide what they're going to do with that money, and one of the things that they've decided that they're going to do is build the Smithsonian Institute of Natural History, and they're going to let all the public school children across the country come in for free. I was talking to one of the guys who worked there. I said, how many kids come in here today? He said, oh, about 10,000. 10,000 a day. Well, I walked, I think it was on the second floor, into the horse, horse evolution shrine. I bet this thing cost a million dollars. And I wouldn't doubt if it was some of my money that I sent up there that they used to, I mean, there were beautiful pieces of artwork. There were bones. And you walked into this and you just got the, the aura of horse evolution. And guess what? It looked almost exactly like this. You had the Eohippus and it was moving up to the Mesohippus all the way up to modern horse and this is exactly what it looked like. Now, ha have you realized what I've been doing tonight? I have not said this is not proof of evolution. I've shown you where the people themselves admit that this is not a factually presented piece of information. You understand what I'm saying? You see the difference? Okay, let me explain to you horse evolution. If you were to do just a little research, what you would come across is that in 1954, what is that? 60 years ago? 70 years ago or so? 1954, the family tree of the horse, it's beautiful and continuous, only in the textbook. The construction of the horse is a very artificial one. It's put together from non-equivalent parts. It cannot be a continuous transformation series. What does that look like? A continuous transformation series. This man says, no, it, it can't be that. Herbert Nielsen, he's not your friend. This isn't a creationist saying, okay, guys, from the creation standpoint, this just can't work. No, no, no. This is the evolutionary community themselves admitting, we've been putting this in textbooks for years. we got a shrine in Washington, D.C., in the Smithsonian, and it's been as false as false can be for the last 60 years. Read it right here. George Gaylord Simpson, maybe you'll recognize that name, probably the most famous evolutionist of his time when he was alive, the uniform continuous transformation of hierocotherium into equus, so dear to the hearts of generations of textbook writers. You read that. Never happened in nature. If it never happened in nature, where did it happen? Only in the minds of the evolutionist who created it. And yet... Since 1954, it's been in most of the textbooks that have taught evolution and we've known it's been false for that long. Stephen Jay Gould says, well, once ensconced in textbooks, now I want you to watch that next word, misinformation becomes effectively cocooned. What Daniel didn't say he was going to do to all of the kids who got to his schools and they were learning something other than evolution? He was going to take every opportunity to teach them that their parents were spreading. What did he say? 
falsehoods. Now this man right here, there again, is not the creationist friend. Stephen Jay Gould was the most outspoken evolutionary writer of his time. And what's he admitting? Once ensconced in textbooks, misinformation. He's saying, we've been lying to these kids. Somebody has lied to these kids, and guess who it's not? Well, watch what he says. As stated above, textbooks copied from previous texts. I've written two essays on this lamentable practice, one on the amusingly perennial description of the Eohippus or Don Horse as the size of a fox terrier, even though most authors, including yours truly, have no idea of the dimensions or the appearance of this breed. I want you to stop right there, and I want you to analyze that just for a second. What does he think this is? It's amusingly perennial. Does that make you laugh? I mean, don't you just get a little chuckle that every single... You know what a perennial is, don't you? You know, if you go to the store and you buy, go to Lowe's and you buy a perennial flower, that means if you plant it. Uh, I learned just a little while back that mums are perennial. I didn't really know that. I thought they were seasonal. Uh, what I did learn was you can go buy one of those big old things of mums and you can plant it in your front yard. You can mow it over after they get all dried out. And the next year, those mums will come back. Mow it again, boom, next year they'll come back perennial. They just keep coming back. He said, you know what, it just makes me chuckle that I'll open a textbook that is from 2000, I'll open a textbook that's from 1995, I'll open a textbook that's from 1990, and isn't it just funny that we use this same wrong information every year over and over? It just kind of makes me laugh. It's just kind of amusing to me. Is that amusing to you? Is it amusing to you that in our country, our children are taught that creation is false and evolution is true using this information that they know has been false and they've known it for 60 years. It's not amusing to me. There's the evolution of horses. I took that particular picture. I think that was a section of a museum I went to, maybe in Atlanta. I don't remember exactly when. We're going to have to speed through this. This is Artipithecus rhamnus cadaba, supposed to be the basal root ancestor of humans. They put out a publicity blitz where they call this guy Artie coming from the very first part of his name and they said this guy was at the base of human evolution and here's what they said. They said this is the greatest scientific discovery in 100 years. I want you to think about that. Back to 1914. Have we made some pretty serious progress since 1914? You know, in my eyes right now, I've got, uh, I've got 2,200 vision. You know what 2,200 vision is? That means I see at 20 feet what most people see at 200 feet. You know, 2020 vision is you see at 20 feet what most people see at 20 feet. That means if I'm standing here looking at something at that wall about 20 feet away, you could be standing at the far back wall and see the exact same thing I see standing here because my eyesight is horrendous. Oh, except I've got these little bitty pieces of plastic. They've got writing on them. Now, I don't go around seeing the writing because somehow when you stick it close enough to your eye, you don't even see it. But this little bitty piece of plastic that I stick on my eye allows me to see at at least 2020. Now, I could stand back there at the wall with you guys and read the same stuff that's on this wall, and I wouldn't have to be standing up here because of my 2020 vision. You know, contacts are pretty amazing things. We've invented them since 1914. You know what we've also done? Sent people to the moon since 1914. You know what we've also done? 
if you were to analyze all the stuff we've done in the last century, there'd be some pretty amazing discoveries. And what? Artipithecus Romulus Kadamba is the greatest discovery in the scientific world in the last hundred years. That's what we were told. For two weeks. That's what we were told for two weeks. Two weeks later they came out and said, oh, you know what? We're wrong. Artie doesn't have anything to do with human evolution. It was a side branch that we had wrong and sorry, back to the drawing board. You mean to tell me they told us that Artie was the greatest scientific discovery in a hundred years and then two weeks later they said, oh, wrong. Yeah, and they do that on a regular basis. They've done it with Piltdown Man. They've done it with Nebraska Man. They've done it with Orca Man. They have had to recant virtually everything they ever said about Neanderthals. Flipper Man, oh, they found the collarbone of a guy. Oh, later they found out it was the rib bone of a dolphin. Let me explain to you what I'm about to say right here. All right, you're about to read something from a man named Colin Patterson. In the 1980s, he was the senior paleontologist at the British Museum of Natural History. Here's what that means. He knew at the time more about evolution than any person in the world, save maybe the senior paleontologist at the American History of the American Museum of Natural History probably one of the two people in the world that's supposed to know the most about evolution. Now, here was his problem. They were having a, an argument about how you label animals. Do you label them according to their evolutionary history or do you label them according to what they look like and what parts of their body look like the same as other animals? And so the evolutionary community was having a big argument about how you label them. And so this guy, Colin Patterson, was trying to decide how you label what categories you put animals in. And here's what he said. He started traveling around and delivering this particular speech. He said, I think always before in my life when I've got up to speak on a subject, I've been confident of one thing. I know more about it than anybody in the room because I've worked on it. He said, well, this time it isn't true. I'm speaking on two subjects, evolutionism and creationism. And I believe it's true to say that I know nothing, whatever, about either of them. Now, let me tell you what has happened. He didn't know that there was a creationist sitting in one of his lectures. The creationist taped it. Had it on cassette. This was back when there were cassettes. He taped it on a cassette, and he put it out. Well, Colin Patterson tried to backpedal and say, well, that's not really what I meant. I was trying to... But I want you to see what he said. He had delivered this particular lecture all across the country. And here's what he said. One of the reasons I started taking this anti-evolutionary view, well, I mean, let's call it a non-evolutionary view, was that last year I had a sudden realization for over 20 years I thought I'd been working on this stuff, evolution. One morning I woke up and something happened in the night and it struck me that I'd been working on this stuff for more than 20 years and there wasn't a thing I knew about it. Folks, what if throughout the course of your study you'd been taught the English peppered moss and you've been taught Haeckel's embryos and you've been taught the horse evolution and you've been taught camel evolution and you've been... And what if you spend all kinds of time learning that stuff and then one day you ask yourself, hold on just a second, let's put the brakes on this and let me see what I really know. What would happen to you is what happened to Dr. Patterson. He said, I've been working on this stuff for 20 years. Folks, that would have been since I graduated from high school. I've been working on this stuff and it hits me one night. There's nothing I know about it. And here's what he said. 
quite a shock to learn. Now you read it for yourself. It's quite a shock to learn that one can be misled. Who does Dr. Patterson say is spreading falsehoods? The people who are teaching the false evolutionary information. He said, no. Either there was something wrong with me or there was something wrong with the evidence. Evolutionary theory, rather. Naturally, I know there's nothing wrong with me. So, for the last few weeks, I've tried putting a simple question to various people in groups. Question, can you tell me anything you know about evolution, anything, any one thing that's true? Let me tell you something. This book right here, Truth Be Told, that Eric Lyons and I went through the textbooks and found virtually everything that they teach about evolution and refuted it in this textbook. We have given this to public school kids across the nation. Last year, I think we were able to give about 1,000 of them out, actually probably more like 1,500 this year, about the same. Uh, we have people do that in any number of ways. It's actually perfectly legal to pass this out in the public school system. As long as you put a little sticker on it that says this doesn't necessarily reflect the views of the administration, and as long as you sit it on a table and don't hand it to a kid, if you sit it on a table and passively distribute it where they can walk by and pick it up if they want, we have the court case that verifies that that's legal. Now, it hacks me off that I have to even say that it's legal because even if it weren't legal, we should have the courage and the bravery to stand up and say, God created you. I don't know why our public school system tells me I can't tell you that. I don't know why they tell me I have to teach something called evolution. I'm going to teach you this evolution, and I'm going to show you why it's false. And then I'm going to show you that you were created in God's image, and that's why you're important, and you're not evolved primordial slime. You really do matter to somebody. You matter to me, but not only do you matter to me, you matter to God, and I'm going to tell you that regardless of who tries to stop me. You know, isn't it time that we had the courage to do what the evolutionary community has been doing for the last 60 years and daring someone to stop them? But instead, what I run into often is that a person will say, you know, i got to teach it. Can you imagine somebody going to Paul and saying, you know what, you have to teach that Jesus Christ isn't God's son. If you don't teach that, we're going to throw you in prison or you're going to lose your job or something bad is going to happen to you. Can you imagine the Apostle Paul or the Apostle Peter, uh, teaching a group of people that and not really making it clear what he thought about the situation and somebody who was a Christian in the first century coming up to him and saying, why in the world did you do that? And Paul said, well, you know, I was going to get thrown in jail if I didn't. I was going to lose my job if I didn't. Folks, what's going to happen when in this country, oh, and it's coming, they make a law that says you can't from the pulpit teach that homosexuality is a sin. They've done that in Canada, if I understand it. Are we, from the pulpit, then going to say, oh, you know what, hey, I mean, if I say that homosexuality is a sin from the pulpit, that I'm going to lose my job as a preacher, I might get thrown in jail, and so I'm just not going to teach that. I'll teach anything else, just not that. How far are they going to have to go in order for us to realize that it's our job to teach the truth, no matter where we are, no matter who we are, no matter what we do? Well, uh, let me just say, we have gotten this into lots of school systems. Uh, uh, Mom called us and she said, Hey, I want to give one of those books to every one of the kids in my son's first grade class. We said, Well, hey, more power to you. Uh, that's about a, a fifth through eighth grade textbook. She said, Yeah, I know, but it's got the information I want. I want to give it to them 
just so they'll have it, so when they start thinking about it, they'll have it. We said, okay, uh, how many you got? She said, well, we got about 30. Now, here's the deal. We are a nonprofit organization. What that means is we're professional money losers. We do it every single year. We're great at it. Never once have we ended up with any extra money, not for the last 34 years of our existence. You know why? Because we will give any person anything, basically, that they want from us if they can't get it for themselves. Here's what I mean. Virtually everything that's in that book is on our website for absolutely positively free. You can get it if you want it. Now, if you want a hard copy of it, you're going to have to buy the textbook because that's the only way you can get a hard copy. But if you were to say, you know what, I don't have the 15 bucks. All right, you got 10. No. You got three? I don't even have three. Okay, here, take this book. Somebody down the road will pay for you to have that book. We've got something called First Fridays in Florence, Alabama, where there is a congregation that has paid to put our materials out at this particular street fair every first Friday of the month. And we have passed out probably 300 of these books because a guy in the Florence area said, I love these books. I want to pass them out free at first Friday. We said, all right, we'll give them to you. He went to several congregations and said, hey, is there any way that you can pay for the printing cost of this so I can pass them out? They said, sure. I gave away 345 of these to a public school system of kids from third grade to fifth grade. They didn't pay me a dime. They didn't pay Apologetics Press a dime. I stood up at the Stony Point congregation where I am a member and a deacon there in Florence, Alabama, and I said, hey, guys, we got a chance to give about 500 of these books away. It's going to cost us about $1,200 or so. If you want to be a part of that, see me afterward. Afterward, within two nights, I had 3000 bucks. Well, we gave out 500 to that group, and then we gave another 100 to this group and another 50 to that group. I have yet, listen to me, I have yet to find a group of kids that I could give a book to that somebody didn't come up and give me the money to give it to them. I had a buddy I was driving on a Wednesday night to the Bible study where I was going. This buddy had come in. I had met him. We'd become good friends. He moved out. He was calling me just before I went. He said, Kyle, uh, how's everything at AP? I said, things going great. He said, any way I can help you? I said, well, it's funny that you asked. I've got a missionary who says he can put 500 of these books and 500 of a, one of our other books. It's called uh, How Do You Know God is Real. says he can put 1,000 of them in public schools in Scotland, but it's going to cost us about 300 bucks to ship them. I mean, 3,000 bucks to ship them. And trying to find that money, I thought he might give us 1,000 bucks. He said, I'll send you a check for 5,000 bucks tomorrow. We shipped 1,000 books over to Scotland, and that missionary put them in the public school system over in Scotland. Now, I say that to say, this lady said, I need 30 of them. I said, all right. I think she paid us three bucks a piece for them. We sent 30 of them to her, and she gave one to every one of her son's classmates in the first grade. She went to the principal and said, how can we get them to them? And he said, that's probably your best bet. Just wrap them as Christmas presents. The next year, one of the students that was in her son's first grade was in his second grade class. He had no ties to the church, didn't know the kid other than from school. They had a teacher in second grade who was extremely pro-evolution. She was teaching them all the millions of years and they evolved from primordial slime, etc. And that kid said, that's not right. And she said, yes, it is right. And he said, no, that's not right. God created everything, and the science points to creation. And she said, no, our book says this. And he said, yeah, well, i got a book at home that says something totally opposite of that, and that says God created the world. She said, well, that book's wrong. 
And the second grade kid said, well, what that book says makes a lot better sense than what you're telling us. Doesn't it, though, make a lot better sense than why is it that in the United States of America, after 60 years of public education, indoctrination, and evolution, still one out of two people that you ask says that the world was created in literal six days some six to 10,000 years ago. Why is that? You know why? Because it's so very right. And we've had 60 years of indoctrination to try to beat that idea out of our country, and the scientists in our country who are evolutionary and atheists, they can't believe that we're still holding on to that idea. You know why? Because when you get to critically consider the evidence for evolution, you realize it's not there. Creation still makes the best sense. And you don't have to have a PhD to understand it, although we've got people who do. The guy who works with us, Jeff Miller, has a PhD from Auburn University in mechanical engineering with an emphasis in thermodynamics. We've got a guy who writes for us that has a Ph.D. from MIT in aeronautic engineering that works for NASA. You don't have to have a Ph.D. to understand that it makes better sense, but we got some. You can be a second grader and know that God created the heavens and the earth works. And we evolved from primordial slime? Does it? I want to thank you for your patience and thank you for your participation in this particular lecture. You guys have listened so very, very well. And it thrills me to know that you are here wanting to learn this information, wanting to be able to pass it on to others. Uh, let me tell you something. I can stand up and do this, but there are people in your sphere of influence that only you can touch. The question is, how will you help them see this truth? Because it's truth, and it's something that they need to know. We're going to take about a 10-minute break. We're going to come back in here at 10 after 7. We're going to, you can get a drink or use a restroom or check the books out. Uh, like I said, let me tell you this. Every single one of those books, virtually every bit of that information is free on our website. We've got DVDs on that table. You can buy them for 10 bucks if you want. Some of them you can buy them for 3 bucks if you want. Or just go to our website, and you can watch every single video that we've got absolutely free on our website. You can watch every single video that we've got free on YouTube. Most everything out there is totally, completely free if you want it. Most of those books, at least a lot of them, are PDF-free e-books on our website. You can download them. If you want to download them and print them yourself, download them and put them on a, a Kindle or an iPad or an iPod, you can do that. If you just want a hard copy, hey, there's hard copies in the back if you want, but most all of that stuff is absolutely positively free. We are not in this for the money. In fact, if we were in this for the money, we would have quit about 33 and a half years ago because that's how this organization is run. I'll tell you what we're in it for. And you listen to me. You understand this. But this book sitting on the edge of this table right here. What good does that do sitting on the edge of this table? None. You know, we've got boxes and boxes of these that we'll give away, we'll sell, we'll do anything we can to get it into the hand of a kid that will pick it up and thumb through it, and maybe, just maybe, that kid will get something out of it that emboldens him to say, that makes sense. 
So how can you get that into the hands of a kid or a teenager or a college student that needs this stuff? 